I'm a Bears fan. I grew up a football girl, but I, you know, it's been a tough uh, couple decades. Yeah, <laughs> it's okay. It's okay that there's life. If you look at the Bengals, it's been a tough life for me. And look what we did last year. So exactly potential. <laughs> i'm still hanging on to the high of 1986 so you know oh lord <laughs> does that include the super bowl shuffle oh i did it on the coffee table in like footy pajamas <laughs> oh my well we have reached the first intimate detail that amy has shared <laughs> <laughs> i guess oh, we you. have a disclaimer that we're running this company better than our football franchises are run i'll add that to show notes for sure there you go <laughs> Your strength is in the brand building. I mean, P&G, what better school of, of brand building is there? And it was enough to lure you from Southern California to the Queen City. That's right, which is where I'm from originally. I've, oh, you are? I've, okay. I've moved back twice. I've left and moved back twice, so I can't so get you away. You definitely got Queen City gravity. That's right. By the way, here's a question. Now, Charlotte calls itself the Queen City, too. Yes, so what the hell? Which is it? And it's why worth, isn't there a huge brawl like when the Bengals and the Panthers play to decide who's the Queen City once and for all? You know what? We should we should let's let's do that. Let's put that into action. I don't know why there's not a huge brawl, but we claim it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you've got the age factor for sure. You've that's had a, it longer than they purport than to they, be. That's right. Actually, maybe it's a Wright brothers thing, right? Because the Wright brothers, even though they took off from Kitty Hawk. They're yep. from Ohio, and so Ohio has accepted the Wright brothers yes. as their favorite sons, even though the actual flight took place in North Carolina. I am unearthing a huge conspiratorial beef between Ohio yeah. and North Carolina, and I think... still It's a long drive from Kitty Hawk to Charlotte, so... <laughs> <laughs> Glad to have you both here. This is our first experiment with more than one guest, which I'm really eager to figure out how to work. Okay. Um, Let's give it a shot. Let's do it. I am all for heading out into the breach, man. That's Um, right. Especially since it seems like in this particular circumstance, given the skill set you each bring to this, there's plenty of questions that each of you will be more than happy to defer to the other. Is that fair to say? I would say so. And that's how the business operates, too. (laughs) Right. That's, I think that's one of the, the great things is that we very early on found this synergy and realized that as a team, we're much stronger, you know, so we do bounce back and forth off each other. Well, I think that's an important adaptation of your cred, too, as CEO, Jake, because since we should, full disclosure, your background's in deodorant. <laughs> deodorant and fintech. It's deodorant exactly. and fintech. Yeah. And, and how often they are confused for each other. Uh, no, I'm, I'm not going to linger on that too much, although I think it is funny just because it appeals to my juvenile sense of humor. Tell me more about Old Spice. <laughs> that uh, was a fun one. Yeah. Yeah. Were you ever involved in that early? I mean, now with their wacky ad campaign. I came um, in in the middle. Yeah, I came in. I wasn't there when, when the first Isaiah spots came out, the I'm on a horse. I was maybe four or five years after that. But that was the soul of the brand. I mean, our team acted like the brand, we were very contrarian within the walls of PNG. I mean, we sort of operated in a way that other brands just couldn't quite get away with. And our, our argument was, hey, we need to be the brand. We need to embrace the brand. So we would play darts in the bullpen and, and kind of joke around when others were not doing that. <laughs> <laughs> well, and speaking of contrarianism, you are listening to the Successfully Funded Podcast. 
Brought to you by KiwiTech, a growing ecosystem of entrepreneurs, investors, mentors, accelerators, incubators, and corporations. We help early and growth stage startups build viable products, drive traction, raise capital, and scale their businesses. Now, before we go much further, we do have a disclaimer to read. These are the greatest hits. Uh, as we'll see in a moment, you can find the full text of our disclaimer at our podcast site, successfullyfundedpodcast.com slash disclaimer. KiwiTech is not acting as a broker, dealer, or investment advisor, and is not registered with the Securities and Exchange Commission in any such capacities. At no time does KiwiTech provide investment advice, endorsement, analysis, or recommendations with respect to securities. Information contained herein should be viewed for entertainment purposes only. KiwiTech does not verify or assure that information provided by any issuer offering its securities is accurate or complete or that the valuation of such securities is appropriate. Investing in securities, particularly in securities issued by startup companies, involves substantial risk, and investors should be able to bear the loss of their entire investment. I am your host, Doug French, and I'm really happy to talk with two principles of really good boxed wine, which, as the name suggests, is the best wine you'll ever have from a box. Uh, they make high-end wine using packaging that is much less expensive and eco-friendly, and it keeps wine fresh up to six weeks after opening. The result is a high-end boxed wine that can sell for 40 to 60% less than it would cost in a bottle. And I'm joined today, this is our first twosome. I'm very grateful for the chance to leap into a three-way conversation with the CEO of Really Good Boxed Wine, Jake Whitman. And the newly minted COO, Amy Troutmiller, who has been in the C-suite for about a week, I think. <laughs> With really good box wine, yes. Congratulations and welcome to the hierarchy of this uh, exciting new venture. Thank you so much. <laughs> so let's talk about this. Let's talk about really good boxed wine. Now, I've read a lot about it. What a great name. You just picked a name that manages to roll off the tongue and describes exactly what it is. So I imagine yep. as a brand builder, you had a pretty good sense of, uh, let's just call it this. Let's call because, it what it is. Yeah. Which probably <laughs> came up as an organic conversation and said, why, why overthink this? Why don't we just call it what it is? Yeah, you got it. I think the premise is extraordinary just because you can sell a lot of good wine in larger quantities in an eco-friendly package. And it sounds like the main hurdle to all this is just kind of how we've been trained to appreciate what wine is and how it should be packaged. So let's start with that. How's the effort to educate people that wine in a box can be just as good as bottled wine, just because we know we have a particular relationship or a particular reaction when we hear the term boxed wine? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. So the first thing I say is consumer perception of the format is like our top five barriers. And that's part of the reason why we named it really good boxed wine. As soon as you see the name of this of this product, you know what it, we're trying to do. Um, you may not believe us yet, but you at least get it and you understand what we're trying to do. And so, you know, we tossed around a lot of different a lot of different names as we were coming up with it. This was one of the very first ideas, and we kind of left for a month and kind of tried to figure out if there was something else. But we kept coming back to it because we I didn't want to name this Whitman Cellars wine and try and hide the fact that this was that this was in a box, like, let's hit it right on the nose. Let's tell people what it is. Let's not pretend that this perception isn't here. And well, instead, that would be, that would think there's like a, that's a chocolate sampler, right? That's yeah. something like that. So that, yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, in, in, you know, part of the confident, the reason why we are confident in, in 
this format now, even versus maybe five years ago or so, is you look over the past 10 or 15 years and screw caps have become more and more accepted. 15 years ago, they were absolute blasphemy for any type of anything above sort of a low on wine. And now there are countries where you can't sell a wine without a screw cap per, per law. And there's really high end wine that, that isn't a screw cap. Same thing with synthetic corks, kegged wine, which Amy has a ton of experience with and canned wine. And, you know, you start seeing the growth of all these ultimate formats. And there was this huge kind of hole in the market that, that there was really nobody else out there that was put in trying to make super high end wine the way you would get in a 30 plus dollar bottle bottle of wine in this in this format and consumers are ready for it and so we talk to people and you know the perception is there but you start telling people the benefits um and that's part of the value of us being an e-commerce brand at least a primarily e-commerce brand right now is we have the time to tell that story and help educate people on these benefits and you see the spark sort of the spark happen in a lot of these conversations where people are like oh that does make sense why am i paying all this extra costs for bottles like that's totally what i want <laughs> totally makes sense well let's talk about the way wine is preserved you know, there are a lot of myths that have been debunked about fermented beverages in general i keep thinking of that monologue from sideways virginia madsen saying the life of wine. Wine is always breathing. It's always evolving. It's not the same today as it was yesterday. So in terms of the physiology of wine, you assert that wine, a really good wine can stay good for six weeks in a box. So um, why is that? The one thing that you can't do with box wine is age it for more than a year. And for any wine that's meant to be aged for more than a year, it should be in the bottle. That's what the bottle and the cork is for. I think the, the kind of hidden secret, though, is that 97% of wine is drank within a year. And it's 90, Amy, I think 93% within three 93% months. 93% within three days. Within three people, days. Yeah, people tend to purchase for consumption, right? Not, not Most people don't have a cellar or even a small wine rack in their home. They're buying on a Friday what they're going to drink through the weekend, or they're picking up a bottle on the way to the dinner party. And as Jake mentioned, while... Studies are are still being done. We're, we err on the side of caution and would not recommend having a, a box sitting in your cellar for more than a year just to maintain the integrity of the wine. But that's only in the box. Like we can age wine as long as we want in tank and barrel and then put it in the box. So we can release back vintages and already aged products in the box. Um, but once it is boxed, one year shelf life is, is what we recommend. And the real enemy of wine, as I understand it, is exposure to air. Yeah. I mean, that's why when you open a typical bottle of wine, as soon as you open that and the oxygen has a chance to interact, it has some great benefits for wine initially as it, it opens up and it can, you know, produce more aromatics and open the wine up itself. Not any different than when you pour it from our box into the glass, that air contact is going to provide some more nuance to the wine itself. But as soon as that's opened, you can't, you can't take the oxygen back out. So you better drink that bottle or it's going down the drain. And, um, you know, with really good box wine, you can pour that one glass and you can come back the next day or a week later and drink it slowly over the course of six weeks and have the same experience as you did the moment that you opened it. So is there like a membrane in there in the spigot or something that kind of or minimizes the oxygen content with what's in the box? Yeah, it's a one-way valve. Um, and so if you think about, you know, you think about a, a bottle is a rigid container, you know, yeah. you pour something out, air has to come back in and it's not, we can't create a vacuum. But the bag inside, the membrane inside collapses around it, and it's a one-way valve. So oxygen literally never gets back up through the valve. Um, it's and kind of like a, like a bubbler when you make beer, right? It kind of it lets, it lets it out, but doesn't let it back in. That's exactly right. 
Well, one thing I want to establish too is that even though Amy has been uh, the COO for 10 days or so as of this recording, she's been with the company a while. She's been part of this effort since uh, last fall. Is that correct? Yep. So Jake, if we dial back a bit, given your background in brand strategy and brand building at Procter & Gamble, every entrepreneur's story is first diagnosing the problem. And we've talked a bit about that in terms of how saw an opportunity to create packaging that I think is cost a 10th as much with the, with yeah. the box. And uh, also each box contains it's three liters, which is like four bottles of wine, four bottles. Well, I guess, I guess it's 750 milliliters is four of those is three liters. Okay. I just did a little math. And then you were having boxed wine and it tasted terrible. And you're thinking there's gotta be a better way to put better wine in better packaging. So how much trial and error went into that process? Once you had the idea, how strenuous was it to figure out whether the uh, the concept worked? I mean, the very, the very first thing that I looked at was, is there a technical reason why you can't do it? That was that was the first, when I saw nobody was doing it, that was my first question. It's like, oh, there must be a technical reason why. And what I found was that there actually is not a technical reason. In fact, if you go to Europe, you buy, you can drink good box wine all over the place. It's a, it's much more accepted in Europe. And so, Europe, um, man, they always get things first. They, I know, I know, they're light years ahead of us in wine. They were riding bikes back. all over town when we were first figuring it out. I mean, I that's right. Shout out to Europe. Well done. You got it. You got it. So after I had a little bit more of a, like a robust conversation with my wife, my brother, and a couple of our friends, I went home and spent like seven hours just like diving into this and was like, okay, there's a lot of opportunity here, and I think people are interested in this. I need to talk to more people, but I think there's something here. And I called the one person who I knew in the wine industry, a woman named Allie Ketchum, who owns a, a vineyard up in Healdsburg in, in the Russian River Valley, kind of in like North Sonoma County. And they make this absolutely beautiful Pinot Noir. I mean, 10 acre sustainably farmed vineyard. Every time I go up to wine country, I go there and they've become, her and her family have become good friends of, of mine and my wife's. And I just spent the last seven hours of my life diving into this. I can't get out of my head what do you think? And if you like it, do you want to do the first one together? And she was like, Jake, I love it. Let's do it. And so I had a very fortunate single one single connection into the, into the winemaking industry that has sort of opened up the entire business. I mean, we are now, we use their same winemaker is now on retainer with, with us, a woman named named Tammy Collins is, is our winemaker. Yeah, you've name checked her many times in your articles, and uh, I've, I've, I've gotten a sense of how important she is to the operation for sure. Absolutely, I mean, she touches every wine, whether we're making it or whether we're sort we're working with other producers. She's part of every every wine we make, and so then it was you know going and figuring out how to do it in the early days of the business. This was the pre Amy time. Was um, there's, there's pre Amy and post Amy, obviously in our you know in our <laughs> business, <laughs> and uh, this was the pre Amy times. Um, I didn't want to put too, too much capital and money into the business in the very early days. I wanted to test the market and understand, is this a viable idea? And so I bought a tabletop filler that was the least expensive filler I could find that would keep oxygen out of the bags during filling. So it had a nitrogen purge and all that, but it was about four feet tall. My The winery that we make it in called it a toy. <laughs> uh, <laughs> And we just sort of took five barrels or so or three and a half. I think the first one was like three and a half barrels or so of Ketchum's Pinot and filled up a couple hundred boxes and said, let's just put this out there and see if people buy it and started building the brand around it and spent kind of the summer building up a waiting list. We got some some nice like local press in the Cincinnati area. And then in, in August, a few months later, we filled them and opened it up and 
started selling them and sold out in about five days. And maybe 60% of people I didn't know. So it's one thing if it's just you know, a couple hundred of my friends and family buying it. But we had a lot of people who I didn't know who just heard about it word of mouth. And that was the first indication that there was really something here and that there was a market for this for this product. People really wanted it. All right. So we're still talking about uh, really good boxed wine in the BA period before Amy. Mm-hmm. So now, how did Amy first come on your radar? How long have you known her? And uh, when did she join? And what was the mindset behind joining the team? I'm going to answer that question first, but Amy, I'm curious about your, when we first reached out, when I first reached out to you, what your, what your thought was. So to your point earlier, I come from deodorant and FinTech. I have absolutely no wine background at all. Well, people <laughs> um, in FinTech need lots of deodorant. So there's a bit of synergy there. They, and probably lots of wine too. And um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> as a leader of an organization, you have to know where your strengths are and where they aren't. And I, it was very, very, very clear that I needed somebody who was an absolute expert in wine, who was by my side. And at the time, you know, we, we certainly didn't have the funding to bring Amy on full time eight, 10 months ago, but I started reaching out to wine consultants, talked to a few of them. As soon as they had the first conversation with Amy, it was very clear that like Amy's got both the the wine knowledge and the wine expertise across all different stages, but also the business savvy that is required. And there's a lot of people in the wine industry, and this is not disparaging. It's just like, there's a lot of people in the wine industry who are just like very obsessed with the product. And that is fantastic. And the product is amazing, but maybe don't have quite as much of kind of the business savvy and how to really grow a company and grow a brand. And I, and I felt that from the first conversation that Amy really had both of those and, and would be a good partner for us at first as a part-time. And as we grew and got to know each other, it became more and more obvious that there was a lot of complementary skills and synergy there. So let's talk about that, Amy. Let's talk about your combination of business savvy and own affilia. What the, where, where did all that come from? Well, I originally came from the operations side of hotels and restaurants. And in those parts of my career, I happened to work for companies where the food and beverage programs were kind of run as their own business. So I started having P&L responsibility from my, you know, early to mid twenties. And so, you know, I've always been in the world of wine and beverage and people have this idea like, oh my God, that must be so fun. You sit around and taste wine all day. I've tasted a lot of wine in my life. But I've spent a lot more time staring at spreadsheets and figuring out, you know, cost of payroll and making ends meet and bringing money to the bottom line, you know, so there's a lot of parts that are fun. But for me, it's always been the business side that, you know, has has been predominant in what I've done. So the knowledge on both kind of just came organically through the opportunities I had throughout my career. And then I made some personal sort of strategic changes in my career to kind of have more balance in my life and, you know, other things that just happen as you get older, that I left the kind of restaurant and operation side of the world and moved into import and distribution. So I got to see both from building from the ground up and then kind of taking over and reforming an established business in that side of it, all sorts of inner workings of basically now all three tiers of the system. But then at some point you became a sommelier as well, and wine became less of a commodity and more of a full-grown study. When did the sommelier part of your career start? I was a wine buyer and running beverage programs as part of my sort of management duties from the time I was 24, 25. 
a lot of studying wine is tasting. It is, you know, theory, it's understanding the terroir, what, what makes, you know, varietals and regions different from one another. And as I began to do that, just to do my job better, I decided to go through the certification process with the quartermaster sommeliers. I will clarify, I have never in my life been a floor sommelier in a restaurant. I was always in a, a management position. So it's a credential. I got that in my late twenties. You know, I was probably one of three women at the time when I took my level to test. And now it's been amazing to see the community that's been built around more women getting into wine and empowering more people to do that. But um, yeah, I was, I was young and just really loved wine as a whole and wanted to learn more. It was definitely more about education than it was about my job necessarily at the time. And I have a brief question that'll just further about appreciation of wine. I promise I'll move on to the nuts and bolts of how really good works. But as a general principle, can anyone be credentialed as a sommelier or is there something natural biological to your palate that you're born with? In terms of becoming the best sommelier, in your opinion, is it nature or nurture or how much of each? I think there's a balance there. You know, I have I have a five and a half year old son who I think, you know, maybe part of it is wishful thinking, but he might end up being a super taster. He's got a pretty good nose already, likes to swirl and sniff a little bit. Um, uh, these strained bananas. These are from yes, South yes. America, I believe. Um, there, there are people who are born with just a, a more sensitive palate and, you know, sense of smell. And I'm sure that benefits, but really and truly it is practice and nurturing those things. If you just have a basic interest in wine, anyone can take entry-level sommelier courses. You can take, you know, testing through WSET, through the quartermaster sommeliers. You can test no matter what your career is. But I will tell you, once you get past that entry level, the hands-on and learned experience of working in the world of wine, whether that be, you know, cellar work in a vineyard or working in a restaurant, there are components of the actual certification process that are very hard to learn without being immersed in that world in some way or have been at some time. But I encourage anybody who wants to learn more to do those tests, even find a little great wine bar in your town that might be doing tasting events or little classes on a regular basis and dive into it. Part of what drew me to it is I I kind of consider myself somebody who always needs to have something new. I like, I like to learn new information. I like to learn about all sorts of things, but there is no point in my life that I will ever know everything about the world of wine. Even the master sommeliers, which there are only, you know, a couple hundred of, they'll never know everything because it's ever changing and it's just too vast to know every single detail. So if it's something you're into, you can learn something new every day for the rest of your life about wine. Yeah, I mean, it's I, I get that. It's kind of like being a tax accountant for the same reason. You just have something new to react to every year. But uh, absolutely. I mean, if wine is alive, then the format for making wine is going to change. And I'm reading now that because of the warming of the planet, a lot of the best European wines are moving from France into England. The proximity to the equator is such that as it gets too hot, Burgundy might not be the wine producing juggernaut it is now in, in a decade or two. I keep thinking also about when you train, I mean, do they hand you a glass and say, what do you perceive in this? And you come out and you say, I detect persimmon and a little uh, lilac and some tobacco. And they say, wrong. There is a part of it that is like that. Um, So there is through the quartermaster sommeliers, there's a blind tasting component of the test. And as you go up, it gets harder and more detailed. But 
you look for indications of the age of what the varietal is. Different grapes have thicker skins, lighter skins. So if it's a red, if you can see through it, if there's some transparency, you know that it's not going to be aged Grenache. You basically are listing out what you think the age is, the region, the varietal. And while you're doing that, you talk about and mention some you know, notes that you find in both the nose and the palate. I'm lingering on this just because I love talking to people who study wine as much as you do. And, uh, and now as we get into the nitty gritty of how the company was formed, there were lots of other proofs of concept that you had to figure out, like the packaging and whether the really good wine could survive in that packaging for the six weeks you talk about. Did you have yeah. any taste tests? So like you proved that it was, it maintained its integrity? Oh yeah, for sure. And and it's interesting because our first two pilot runs that, that we did in August and November of last year were super limited runs. They were done with that tabletop filler, more opportunity for human error, I would say, because you know, the an automated line has a it has a sealed vacuum area and it has everything is machine run, which is how we box our wines now. But at the time, you know, you're sliding it in, you have a pedal that does a nitrogen purge to get the oxygen out. You do a lever and the wine comes in and then you cap it and there's time potentially for a little bit of oxygen to get in. And so our first couple runs, we had some boxes that would last the full six weeks. We tested a bunch of them. Some after two or three weeks started to deteriorate a little bit. It's, it's really just oxygenation. It's not poisonous. It just sort of starts to degrade the flavor of the wine. It's a slow process, but we could have done it to do the tabletop filler, but it was, I mean, it was just blatantly clear that we needed to find a co-packer that had a full, a full line. And I spent almost a month out in Sonoma, kind of like getting the whole supply chain built after that second run and making sure that we didn't run into some of the same problems we had in the early, in the early days with, um, with quality control. So absolutely. And then, and then once we did it with the co-packer, we've, we've tested each of our wines as well. And it's, it's consistently six weeks or more. I mean, some when you put one in the fridge, we're, we're relatively conservative on the six week number. When you put it in the fridge, it may last longer. Well, and I meant to ask that too, because as you were experimenting with the right container, you had these two bits of calculus to consider. You had to maintain the integrity but you also had to keep your costs way down and you've come across with something that, as you say, is one-tenth the price of the packaging that most consumers pay for. Yeah. So is there anything else inside that box? Is there a bladder of some kind or how are you able, I mean, this is all an eco-friendly package. Mm-hmm. So what in particular about it keeps the integrity of the package and yet is ready to biodegrade when the time comes? Yeah. So the, the box replaces four glass bottles, four corks, eight labels, four foils, all the styrofoam that surrounds it when you have to ship it, both when the glass is empty and when the glass is full. So it's several time kind of shipments. And then there's space. And so it creates more of a footprint. We can put almost 70% more volume of wine on each palate than you can with bottles because they can sit flush against each other. So you add all that together and it's just a massive carbon footprint reduction. The reality is there is a plastic bladder inside. We don't hide that. There is some work being done to find a biodegradable option. The technology just isn't there yet. Um, the bags are recyclable the way like a grocery bag is. So you can take it to a plastic grocery bag is. And we're working on, it's not 100% implemented yet, but we're working on a program to do a mail back where you can mail them back to us and we'll take care of recycling the bags. But the boxes are obviously, you fold them, you throw them in the recycling bin. And I'll give you a context for just how kind of how much of a savings this is. We did an event the other day where we went through nine boxes, which is 36 bottles of wine. And we were up on the top floor on the roof doing the event. 36 glass bottles of wine is a hard thing to just carry out at breakdown. 
yeah. at the end of the event. We folded up nine boxes. We took the bags that, that I took them with me that we go recycle them later. And we put the we put nine boxes in the recycling bin and walked out the door. <laughs> I mean, it was just when you see them stacked against each other, you understand how much how much less material we're able to use. And I think um, the world has sort of gotten used to there's being a trade-off between what I have to pay for sustainability. So I think as a consumer, I have to pay more for things that are more sustainable. And really good box wine is this beautiful combination where we can charge you half the cost of what you would pay for the exact same wine in the bottles. And that's half the carbon footprint as well. And one day we can all share the image of a wealthy collector who wants to take you down to their wine cellar. That's right. Open the door and <laughs> a bunch of stacked boxes. <laughs> there you go. And you know what? Maybe it's open and you can just tap it straight to yourself <laughs> because it stays fresh for so long. <laughs> it's all spigots. Yes. It's just a bunch of spigots in the closet. That's awesome. That's right. That's right. You mentioned also events. And I think and when I talk to uh, entrepreneurs in the beverage industry, particularly in spirits uh, or anything where it's something that a consumer has to really try to be fully convinced, do you find that you're able to reach out and, and have more events and, and introduce your product to more potential customers to kind of show them for sure that what they're getting is the real deal? Yeah. I mean, we try and do as many as we can. You do see this kind of light switch go off in people's minds when they try it and they're like, oh my God, that's really good. Yeah. <laughs> like, wait, I, I, I knew, again, I knew what you're trying to do, but now I've tried it. And it's like, wow, that is, that is some good Sauvignon Blanc. Like that's, that's better than the Sauvignon Blanc that I drink at home. So you see this light switch and, and we're trying to find more ways to do it. it. Wine is an experiential thing. It's a very personal thing. And so finding ways to get people to try the product is, is definitely a priority of ours. We can't do it across the whole country all the time, but we try to do it as much as we can. Well, those eureka moments are real deals. The experience of tasting something and recognizing that the, the proof is in the taste, which is eventually how really box wine is going to catch on through word of mouth, literally. <laughs> um, and you mentioned too, like one of the limitations, speaking of sparkling wine, I know there's a big market for sparkling wine and the technology isn't quite there to use put sparkling wine in the boxes yet, but is that a goal as a future a source of growth? I will just say as somebody who personally loves champagne, if the technology allows us, I will be pushing very hard to put some bubbles in a box. But um, All right. Now we know the real reason why Amy was brought into this. She wants to make sure the C stands for champagne. Got it. There's always innovation in this. I think the more higher end wines that come out in boxes, the better. I mean, it's it's a better format than bottles for a lot of ways, other than the tradition and elegance. It, yeah, sure. Yeah, it gets a matter of time. So let's talk about uh, revenue projections. When you think about growth, what, what is the primary first step you need to take in the next level? What's priority number one with this next round of equity funds? We've built this company almost entirely organically. It was intentional to not just pour tens of thousands of dollars into media and marketing until we until we learned. And I think it's a, I don't want to call it a mistake, but there's a lot of company, there's a lot of startups out there that raise a ton of money and just sort of dump too much money into the market too quickly. And their tacks are really, really high. And it's hard to, sometimes it's even hard to learn because there's so much going on and it's hard to figure out exactly what's working. So we have a really good sense of who our target market is. And we have a great sense of repeat purchase rates. And we've, we've kind of proved out what people are looking for. And so the capital that comes in the door with, with this raise um, is primarily going to be used to improve kind of our MarTech stack, call it, the, the marketing technologies and the agency partners around us, and then injecting growth into the business and, and putting more 
paid you know paid acquisition out there, more education, more awareness driving activity, just to make now that we have a product that we know people love, let's make sure people know about it. And what kind of marketing do you have planned? I think, uh, mm-hmm. as we say, you want to be more grassroots. As far as brand building, what particular elements to your brand do you want to emphasize? You're marrying two seemingly disparate things, right? The the finer things, but more affordable. And yeah. So how do you thread that needle in terms of deciding what that brand stands for? It sounds like more along the lines of greater access to the finer things. 100%. Uh, Okay. So yeah. is that basically how your brand is going to evolve? That's a big piece of it is we want to, you know, to use an overused startup term to democratize access, right? Like we, and that, that is an overused term I know, but it, I actually think it does a good job of describing w- at least one of our, our, our goals, which is like, people should be able to drink really great wine. It is a, it is a wonderful thing. And not everybody has the capability to fly to Sonoma and sit in the tasting room. And we want to give people access to really high-end wine and like discover this world of wine in a format that's not pretentious, isn't trying to be pretentious. I mean, the name alone shows that we're not trying to be the elusive equivalent of Vogue in the wine world or something like that. Like we're, we really want to bring people great wine and, and, you know, we want to change the way people think about wine. But in the end, it's about like giving people a new way to enjoy this wonderful thing in the world. Yeah, and I think the name says it all. To call it really good boxed wine and not, you know, uh, Boite du Vin, you know, yeah. <laughs> it becomes, it comes across very clear that you're you're there to kind of embrace a, a no-nonsense approach that yeah. I think will appeal to a lot of people. So when you talk about this effort to expand, and, and are you prepared to scale when the time comes as far as your cost of goods sold and your processes? Um, if demand spikes in this time when you are getting a bit more oxygen, you've been in the Washington Post a couple of times, how are you prepared to scale? We have the ability both with our partners as far as wineries that we work with and producers, and then also grape sourcing, because we do have a winery license, that we can make some pretty fast and strategic decisions. Some of the wines that we have already released, we have the ability to, um, you know, produce more of that exact wine, which we can do pretty much with two-week turnaround. There's time in the process of um, the supply chain that creating a new release does take a little bit longer. But if we want to release something that we have in the past and, and just make more of it, we have the ability to do that. We also, because of the fact that we are varietally and regionally agnostic, we can look at any number of factors relating to a certain vintage or what's going on in the world. We can source from anywhere around the world. And so that gives us the ability to really tap into great wine that comes from anywhere. And in the next year, we're probably going to be increasing our production by about five times. Jake and I are pretty, we say scrappy, but we happen to make things happen uh, when they need to. And we also have a very close eye on what is happening in the business? What are the trends? What is selling most this month? What do we need to plan for the next month? And and we keep a very close eye on everything on a daily basis. So obviously we would love to go viral in some way and have 10,000 boxes go out the door in a week. That would be amazing. And we would immediately have a plan in action to to replace those and be ready for the next next round of customers. Did I read correctly that you're also experimenting with your own proprietary varietals and your own really good boxed wine that you're making yourselves? Yeah, both our Sauvignon Blanc and our Rosé that are out right now are both wines that we purchased grapes and Tammy made as our winery partner. 
those are our fully produced and made by really good box wine, not through a partnership with another producer. And how much time did that take to, to bring to market in terms of developing the recipe? I mean, irrespective of Tammy's expertise, uh, what does it take to build your own varietal and make it a viable product? We're not building our own varietal per se, right? Um, yeah. We purchased Pinot Noir grapes and knew we wanted to make a rosé with it. So the questions there around the winemaking are really how many hours of skin contact to get you know the right color and, and texture of the wine that we wanted. And we do not really do any sort of manipulation. You know, the recipe for wine comes from nature. It's how that year's harvest went, the rain, the temperatures, the, you know, harvest state, the bricks level, things like that when, when we bring it to the winery. And there's very little we do other than basically bring out the best of all of those components in that varietal and let it shine, the region and, and the grape. And so the winemaking process, when you have somebody wonderful like Tammy, has more restraint than it has intervention. And we don't want to manipulate something to taste like something it's not. Uh, So Andy Myers, who's our master sommelier that works with us and endorses the brand, the Sauvignon Blanc in particular is his favorite because it's just so clearly and cleanly a representation of Sonoma and, and Sauvignon Blanc that oftentimes will get played around with in a way that you don't know where it comes from when you're blind tasting it or when you're can get a little bit confusing. So I think that our goal is to find and source whether it's grapes or juice from the best places that we can and do as little as possible to make those things shine. And when you talk about a customer base, the overall market for wine must be just colossal. Is that a finite market? Do you think is when you work out for your piece of the pie, are you supplanting revenues from somewhere else? Or do you think the pie is expanding and there's plenty of business for everybody? For context, the wine industry in the United States is is just about the same size as the auto industry in the United States. Absolutely massive. It's like an $80 billion industry. Mm. Um, and globally, it's about a $450 billion industry. So you're right. It's a it's an absolutely colossal size industry. But what's really amazing is it's, it's growing. When you look at like Kager's year over year, it's a relatively rapidly growing industry. What's even more exciting, though, are, are a couple of things. One is Wines that are in the $15 to $20 price point by bottle is the fastest growing segment from low-end wines to high-end wines. It's really the only one that's truly kind of truly growing is is that segment. And our per bottle price falls squarely in that. Alternate formats are growing very rapidly as you you look across boxes, cans, kegged wines, kind of all the non-traditional glass and cork bottles are growing very quickly. And then direct-to-consumer is growing quickly as well, which is Right now, our sole business, we are starting to move into some retail and on-premise and, and doing catering events and stuff like that. But right now is our kind of core focus, building it into like, you know, a real like e-commerce business from a business model standpoint. And so, yeah, I think there's a ton of opportunity for us to grow in a lot of different ways, growing with the market, um, growing with the kind of sub-market around alternate, alternate packaging. And then just kind of the growth of the more premium wine category is really where all of the growth is in this in this industry right now. One point I'll add to that is that boxed wine, I think, is considered one of the gateway wine products, right? It's it's similar to your two buck chuck from Trader Joe's. It's the things that somebody who is younger, maybe has a limited budget, is going to start off trying, and that's their entryway into the world of wine. And those people 
already understand the benefits of box wine in so many ways. And up until now, right, they haven't had anything to move on to except for a bottle when they're ready to start spending a little more or exploring or want better quality. And so we feel like there's a, a, you know, a market there too for people that are already in this segment and understand and appreciate the format to now graduate to drinking better wine, still at a great value, but as they continue their exploration of the world of wine. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned two buck chuck too, because I just noticed the other day that it's mostly four buck chuck now. Yeah, uh, yeah. So that's a sign of the times, I guess. Yeah. Uh, well, as we wind down here, I wanted to ask also just a quick question in the interest of full disclosure the headwinds. What keeps you up at night? And I have two people. From a vintner's perspective, what do you think your priority will be in terms of staving off potential uh, hindrances to the revenue projections you've made? For me, it is making the right decisions as we grow, right? We're getting attention, we're garnering um, some press and, and some recognition. And it's in, while we're building the brand, um, we need to make the right strategic decisions. What varietals to add, what regions to source from, with our pricing model, how to work around any changes if we decide to do that there, moving into three-tier retail, all of those things. The strategy is really the key point because early on a brand, one mistake can be the death of you. And I think that that's why, again, we're, we're stronger together is that the things that we think about and think through and talk about really suss out all of those risks in every decision that we make. And um, we just need to keep making smart, smart ones. And Jake, how about you as the, uh, you know, you, this has been your brainchild since the beginning. So as you look at the progress that uh, really good boxed wine has made, what do you see as, a, as the, uh, the biggest challenge ahead and how do you hope to confront it? Yeah, I mean, touche, Amy. I think that is spot on and probably where, where I would have gone to. I'll say the other, the other one that I really think about is, you know, we've gone from a period of a lot of organic growth, a lot of repeat customers, a lot of like fandom around, you know, th these are the early brand ambassadors. These are the people who are the evangelists of the brand in the early days. And we are on the precipice with this raise of stepping into the next phase, which is injecting a lot more growth capital into this company and, and really starting to scale the business. And I think what keeps me up at night is tied into what Amy's, Amy's saying, but is making sure as we grow and as we scale that we are continuing to keep the quality of the product high, the brand intact. This is not an Amazon FBA business that is just like a turnkey sales business. Like we are trying to, we are working to build a community where we're, we're really working to build a brand and like move really like truly kind of move up a portion of the wine industry into this new format. And it's going to take capital to do that and making, we have to make smart decisions on deployment of capital from a growth standpoint for the brand overall, and not just getting obsessed with growth and not kind of just chasing the next big thing, but really being smart about our growth. But it's, it's a, we're at a critical kind of pivot point in the business right now, as we start to expand, there will get to a point in our, in our company's growth where the real next path to growth is either building a winery or buying a thousand acres of vineyards or whatever. And that just becomes a different type of business. And that's likely the point is at which we will start sort of actively talking to potential acquirers where we would have to make that decision to continue growing. You know, that's, that's a pretty far ways, ways away, but, it, but if we can get to that point, we'll be in a fantastic position for, for an exit where we would have to make that call on that pivot point. Especially since it doesn't strike me that you feel ready to sell just yet because you're just getting on to this next phase. And, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, I look forward to the opportunity to see you, you know, in retail, you know, to see you in a, in a wine store. Because I think that's a big part of 
getting people used to the idea that fine wine can be in a box. And you're undoing, you know, centuries of brainwashing, I guess, that says wine comes in a bottle at the end. And uh, for anybody who's looking for more information, where can they find you? Where can they find uh, updates to your crowd raise and uh, any other information that they'd like to hear more about? You can go to reallygoodboxwine.com. That's our e-commerce storefront or follow us on Instagram. Did you choose that name because the URL was available? <laughs> it's kind of fascinating. No, it's, you know, in this day and age, to find a URL with real words in it. <laughs> it's amazing. It, but it's, I will tell you, it's great for SEO. It's, it's amazing for organic search. It was at least in my mind. Also, feel free to email me, Jake at Really Good Box Wine. I love talking to current customers or potential customers and, ask, and answering questions. I'm always always happy to happy to talk. And if you want to take a look at the crowdfunding campaign, if you go to seedinvest.com, we're one of maybe six or so uh, startups that are that are raising money on there right now. So scroll down, you'll find us. Great. Yeah. Well, I'll put some links in the show notes, including a link to that great monologue by Virginia Madsen. And we've learned so much this session. We've unearthed a deep-seated beef between Ohio and North Carolina that I hope just escalates. <laughs> <laughs> Listeners, thank you so much for listening to a successfully funded podcast. I have been your host, Doug French. That is the CEO, Jake Whitman, and the COO, Amy Troutmiller, of Really Good Boxed Wine. And I really thank you both for making this first three-way conversation a rousing success. So appreciate the time. Thank you for having us on. This was a lot of fun. It was fun. You do a great job. Thank you so much. Oh, I appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, ask good, quite real questions again. Like you're, I appreciate the ask. Thank you for listening, and uh, once again, we will see you next week with uh, another entrepreneur who is trying to teach us to think a different way and enjoy the finer things. Until then, see you next week. <laughs> <laughs>